Hello, and welcome to Molding Masculinity. I'm Vengeance, and I'm here with Philip Sype this week, and we're going to talk about Batman. Um, specific yeah, Vengeance, and I am the Knight. So yes, there we go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, specifically this week, we're going to be talking about Batman 1989, which is not the name of the movie, but everybody knows Batman 1989 as Batman 1989 because it was the first Batman movie that anybody cares about. I, I, I say that is a in case there was a Batman movie before 1989, I, I don't know about, but it's the movie I grew up with. It's the movie that came out the year I was born. Um, my dad, and so like. It was a movie that my dad was obsessed with as a 20-something, which I think is something exciting here because, like, you know, we're, well, 30-somethings. But my dad was close to our age when that movie came out, and he thought it was amazing. So amazing he had to get it on VHS tape, the, like, like pre-order it on VHS tape. And so I grew up with it. So it's a huge part of my childhood. Not as much part of your childhood, but definitely a movie you care about. So, Yeah. Let's dive into it. Uh, what's your biggest take? Uh, hmm, it's interesting. Um, so it wasn't a huge part of my childhood. Um, certainly the animated series was like really important to my childhood. Um, it, it's it's a very 80s, like late 80s Batman. Uh, um, and that's like, there's a lot of, um stuff that you know is nostalgic for me but is also like like i like very much remember like the car and that outfit and all that stuff like we're very big um i'd say that like as a masculine character as sort of like a, a representation of masculinity it's interesting in that he um, a very central thing that I got, like, I guess, like, my biggest takeaway is that, like, um, when everyone thinks of Batman, they think of a billionaire with a lot of gadgets that fights crime. Uh, and obviously, that's tied in with a lot of political issues, um, both billionaires and the fighting of crime uh, through violence. Um, and... I noticed there was a very interesting feel of at least the impression I got was that the 89 Batman really shies away from the billionaire aspect of himself. Like there's this sense of like, yeah, okay, I'm rich. I, I, I happen to be rich, but like uh, he, like the, the girl of the movie, the, the love interest, like even comments like, oh, you know, you, this house doesn't feel very much like you. And there's this sense of like his wealth is something that he's inherited and isn't really part of him. And like, is almost like um, shoving away from the, the rich part of Batman. Um, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a big kind of a difference from the Nolan era Batman's like the no or the you know the Christopher Nolan Batman's really I feel like tried to play up the Playboy billionaire image. And well and also even before that when you get the Schumacher uh Batman's with George Clooney, it really plays up the billionaire image. Um and yeah, the 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 uh 19 the Tim Burton Batman's eventually later on dive a little more into it but especially yeah 1989 
he's a billionaire. He's obviously rich. He's in a ridiculous mansion. Like there's several shots of the mansion that are just insane. You know, she mentions, have you ever been in this room? And he's like, oh, no, I've never even been in this room. And it, but it, it, but exactly that. It feels like separated from him. He is Batman. He has to cosplay as Bruce Wayne. Um, which is something to talk about in the new Batman movie, which we'll, we will have a podcast about the new Batman movie here eventually, but uh, we're, we're just diving through some classics first. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a valid difference, and a difference that made it, for me, much more watchable. I mean, like, I enjoyed the Nolan Batmans, don't get me wrong, but I, I think as a kid, I wouldn't have related as much to the Nolan Batmans, because I would have taken it as just like, oh, this is just some rich dude. Um, who just bought a bunch of cool stuff. That's not interesting. Like this one specifically for me, like one of the things about Batman is it's not just that he's like got a bunch of martial arts training and that he's knows how to do all this stuff. It's that he's a genius. He's smart. He's intelligent. He built a jet powered car, which, you know, for a kid in the nineties, that is just such an amazing, exciting, cool thing. Dude built a jet powered car. Um, but you know, and you see him working on it at points. You also see him doing detective stuff. You see him researching things. You see him doing all of the stuff that is like smart detective genius, uh, uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman, not just rich dude with infinite resources. And obviously his resources make it possible for him to do what he does. And, you know, he later on uses those resources to do other things. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it made for me a much more relatable Batman. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and like, you know, there's plenty to comment on about like some of the social aspects of it. Like, you know, like I mean, it's, it's a movie from 1989. It's going to have all the criticisms that a movie from 1989 are going to have. Uh, so like, I, I almost like think it's less relevant to to uh, like harp on that. And like, not that it's not worth commentary, but like, I'm sure there's other people who have commented on the social aspect of Batman in a I mean, there's one specific. Yeah, there's, than there's we ever will. Sorry. <laughs> there's one. No, no, you're fine. There's there's one specifically that I think is specific to 1980s movies that Batman also does that also folds into a modern thing though that I do think is important to talk, useful to talk about, and that is there's a thing that all of uh, the Tim Burton era Batmans and really a lot of just the Batman universe did kind of up until the Nolan universe. I don't feel like this happened as much in the Nolan universe. And that is the idea of the uh, innumerable henchmen, the idea that Batman is constantly fighting these hordes of henchmen, which are always just the poor and trodden down folks of Gotham. And that just feels that's problematic. And now that's also a, yeah, that's a core element of eighties movies. Like something I've talked about kind of recently is how like so many action movies in the 1980s used uh, Russian soldiers as cannon fodder uh, in the way that that feeds into certain like things that follow along today to where like people have no problem sitting on TikTok and watching like Russian 16 uh, year old conscripts get blown up in a tank by a javelin missile in it. I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that like kind of folds through, um, which also folds into another thing that is very important because everybody wanted to complain about Batfleck and the fact that Batfleck killed people and Batman doesn't kill, Batman doesn't shoot anybody, and Batman 1989 has a body count. 
Boy, does he have a body count. I mean, he drives into a factory, lures a bunch of these random henchmen, just, you know, folks of Gotham, up to his car, and then drops grenades and blows up the whole factory. Like, Batman in the, the, the um, in that universe has a body count. But it's like the comf it's the kind type we were more comfortable with in the eighties, or you know, the, those old action movies. It was the type where like, you know, it, it's the cutscene violence. It's the drop a grenade and then cut to the next scene. And you know the guy exploded, but you don't have to see it, so it doesn't feel as real. And uh that's problematic, but also like when we talk about like new Batmans and being like, Oh, but Batman didn't kill people, like Oh, yeah, no, he did. You just didn't recognize it as that because cutscene violence. Yeah. And like, it's weird because like, uh, I feel like people get like this weird, like need for characters to to fit with like their ideologies. I see this a lot in like uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Uh, people are all like, because like Aang is such like a character that has like this very, like very clearly stated, like pacifist approach to things. Like he he has an entire arc about how he can't kill the fire lord even though it's like his big destiny thing and then like people are like so people go around being like oh ang never killed anyone the whole time it's like he dropped an avalanche on an entire battalion of soldiers you're telling me every single one survived <laughs> like the airships that he blew up everyone from the crash of that airship went away completely alive not with life debilitating injuries like come on like this is just like it's it reminds me of that a lot. Yeah. And and now another element of the times. But I do think that the movie was trying to address and this folds directly to me into masculinity is um Nick uh, Vicky Vale and the fact that Oh boy, did she have a toxic workplace. Uh, there's a lot of sexual harassment that takes place in her workplace. Her coworker oh, yeah. is just barking up the tree all the time. And there's a bit of a tent to the movie that's like, oh, he's annoying, but he's harmless. That I definitely think is problematic in the way that it builds that framework of that we end up having for workplace sexual harassment. That's like, oh, it's annoying, but it's problematic. Like, no, that it's a problem uh she shouldn't be driving around town in the dark with this dude because he is acting like a creep um which i mean and, and yeah so that's a fold of the movie there's also another fold that i actually do really enjoy in that they give her they, she is not just a figure who is there as just a romantic subplot. Now, of course, there is a criticism here of they should be able to have female characters who aren't a romantic subplot, but she is more than that. And one of the important things about Vicki Vale is that Vicki Vale is like a detective type. She's a journalist, but like through being a journalist, she's able to figure stuff out. And that, for one thing, pulls that out of Bruce so that we see more of Bruce Wayne's detective side as he's figuring things out with Vicki Vale. And it also, one of the things I really appreciate is in this movie, Bruce starts to tell her that he is Batman, but he doesn't get to, and then she gets to discover it on her own through her own capabilities as a journalist. And I think that's really important. It would have been really easy for them to be, you know, do the whole him unveiling himself to her in the similar kind of way that they do with Catwoman and Batman Returns. 
I think it's much more valuable to be like, no, he doesn't get to do that. She figures out that he's Batman. She's the only person in Gotham, including like people who know Bruce Wayne very well and then meet Batman, which is like, you know, uh, Gordon, uh, Commissioner Gordon, uh, the mayor, like the mayor it get like has face-to-face conversations with Batman and Bruce Wayne in later movies, like scenes apart and yet doesn't figure it out. But Vicki Vale sees right through the veil yeah well there you go uh uh yeah i have i've always had this like weird um thing like and some batmans go like out of their way to like make sure like you know there's like other rich people in the world but like it's always a little bit baffled me that like no one figures it out it's like okay you've got a guy who's like in a big expensive costume like that has like body armor and shit built into it and uh he drives like a giant ass armored car with rockets like even if you know like setting aside the fact that he invented it like it like who can buy the raw materials to invent that (laughs) like that's expensive as shit like (laughs) uh yeah so it was always baffling to me that there was like this sense of like uh like no one ever is just like huh i I wonder if it's the rich guy that's really attached to gotham that's like the the guy with all the rich gadgets that's beating up all the people that make gotham worse (laughs) like anyway yeah Yeah, no no and i mean there's like a i've heard like a theory that floats around that like oh everybody knows that like like all the police and stuff and everybody knows that like batman is bruce wayne it's just they don't hell because but i don't i don't know that i think that's convoluted fan theory um yeah no you're right and that is kind of a problem to the the whole thing uh especially since in this like we one of the things i do enjoy about batman 1989 is that we get batman the myth in the beginning of it's just like oh there's some dude dressed as a bat whatever and then in the end they're like oh he's real but also then he immediately jumps to just like cruising around doing patrol in his batmobile which is yeah like kind of giving away like wait this dude's just driving a jet car around town like uh (laughs) which also and also brings me to my next thing of i keep you know what what i like to say about like batman oh batfleck and then batman doesn't shoot people batman in batman 1989 has a jet fighter equipped with hellfire missiles and machine guns yeah and he like literally zooms in on the joker at the like parade and then like unloads an entire round that like inexplicably misses which like the like it's just like the most plot armory thing i've ever seen in my life like a a computer targeting thing like zeroes in on it and like he opens fire on the machine guns and like perfectly goes to the side either side of him it's like i don't (laughs) i don't believe this not even a little bit (laughs) like but still you know uh yeah like he definitely attempts to kill the joker in a very like clear way uh like anyway one second i need to pause my dog is doing something odd somebody tell me what kind of a world we live in where a man dressed up as a bat gets all of my press this town needs an enema 
so let's see where we were talking about um the batmobile or the the bat jet shooting at joker being ridiculous the way it goes down both sides yeah so yeah but you know i think it's interesting because like to to sort of like return to the reason to talent for this episode you know like there are two major figures that are masculine presenting in the um in the movie there's i mean there's a lot of masculine presenting characters don't get me wrong obviously like but sort of like the two big biggest ones i think un uncontroversially are batman and the joker and in this one this is one of the ones where we get an origin for the joker uh and it's really interesting in that like there's a little bit of the um that that sort of neoliberal idea about crime like like it's very like got an individualist attitude like the joker has a little bit of that in him right like there's that sense in which like like they make sure to include a thing of like oh you know he was always kind of a you know like violent getting into trouble from a very young age is like like the badness was born in him and like the the unfortunate things and the accidents and the horrible things that happened to him are a product of like his the outcome of those things is a product of his like individual failings almost almost implied to be sort of like genetic or inherent to him as a human being rather than like you know something like some idea about crime that it's like a thing that people fall into rather than uh like you know go like oh well i'm like kind of a bad guy so let me (laughs) go into crime because that's a that's a play that's that's where people like me make a living or whatever like yeah i i agree i agree and this is yeah that's somewhere where i you know i initially i remember as a kid uh i very much enjoyed the joker specifically i liked the joker better than other batman villains even in like the next batman movie essentially because of that because it was a much easier thing to process and a much more enjoyable thing to think about like the joker in 1989 is just a villain. He's a straight-up villain. There's no good dudeness to him. There's no greater scheme that he has. There's no greater plan. There's no, um, like, thing where he's trying to take apart the corruption of Gotham, which is a common thread throughout pretty much all of the other Batman villains, is they're trying to dis- destroy the corruption of Gotham. It's just they're doing it in a different way than Batman would be doing it. Uh, with Joker, it's just he's a psychopath, um he's a mob boss and he's combined those two things to go on a tirade against gotham and it's really it, it, it's easy story writing to digest especially as a kid but also as adults as adults we really like those black and white stories it's really easy to digest really easy to think about don't gotta process it very far but is it realistic and I think that's where it does fall apart. Like that's it, it, one of the most interesting things about Batman is the rogue gallery. The all of the villains that are put, set against Batman all say something about his psychology and what it is that he's doing. It's everything is like um, it, it's all of his villains are systemic. They're a creation of the sy- system, and you know, and this can in that that. Yeah, it's it's that relationship it, that's interesting. And in specific, like, um, so many of the Batman villains are creations, not just system, systemically of the, you know, crime and poverty that exist in in Gotham, but also specifically of Batman. 
um, which like um, is kind of interesting because it's like <laughs> it's almost like a a, a, re, a giant red flag in Bruce's life that he just can't see. Uh, and I think like, so my, my sort of take on, on, I mean, it's hard to make it specific to 89 Batman because it's so like present in all of them, but like, you know, here we are. Uh, like a huge aspect of Batman is like his folk, his wrestling with like the concept of like justice versus revenge. Like, you know, he always talks about like, like, I mean, even that quote, like I am vengeance, right? Like the, there is that sense of like, there's a big red flag here to him of like, hey, this crusade thing that you're on, like you're putting more pressure on a thing and it's responding back to you in that, like in a very Newtonian sort of way. Like, like the more you go hard, the harder it pushes back and the more supervillains get created. Like the Joker is like sort of the, the quintessential version of this, like in in 89 Batman very particularly, he literally like throws him into the vat that turns him into Joker. Uh, and there's this sense of like, maybe if you're gonna use your position of wealth and privilege to fight crime, don't do it by getting a really, you know, do not do it by increasing your force, increasing your violence, increasing your personal investment into physically stopping these people from doing the thing. Like, because you keep doing that and it keeps making the problem worse. Like in a really extreme way in Batman's case, it's like he brings an armored car, a jet plane with missiles and machine guns. He brings uh, all kinds of tools and, and stealth things and whatnot. And, you know, everything he does, he keeps creating super villains, uh, you know, and this is, this is constantly the, the theme. And, and I feel like this is often like a thing, a reason why the, the rogues galleries are so, uh, for Batman are so appreciated because so many of his villains are physical embodiments of systemic outcomes it's like the Joker is the embodiment of the the violence, like in, in 89 Batman's Joker specifically, um, is embodiment of violence that comes out of people who are put into a community, like like Jack, the uh, the character that was the Joker. Um exists as like as part of like a crime circle and he's in this community power and he's angling to get more and he's you know like they make a they make a whole point of like he's kind of like making moves to try to like get more power in this cr world of crime and that's what gets him into the scenario where he's been you know he 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 eventually gets turned into the joker right that gets him into that scenario but like it, as in becoming the Joker, like he becomes the embodiment of like people who exist in a community of power where like violence and strength and power are the ways that you get ahead. Like what's the ultimate outcome of that? That taken to its extreme is like, the guy literally calls himself a homicidal artist. Like I'm gonna show 
that I am so good at just killing people and demonstrating power that I am, you know, it's, it's almost an art form. Like, and that's like seeing that get like stand against like this other person is, is sort of what's satisfying about the character, at least to me. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, like, and, and so talking about that rogues gallery, one of the things you see is in like the Tim Burton movies, there is, um, well, there's no asylum. There, there's no, um, what's the name? Arkham. Yeah, there's no Arkham. He just very specifically every my... villain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Although I think it's, uh, that, that's another thing that's an interesting commentary is that like the choice to use the word Arkham there, why is it not the Gotham Asylum? Yeah, and I mean, right? It, this Arkham is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft. It's the name of the city where all the like horrible eldritch occult stuff keeps going on. There's like this sense of like this is the, <laughs> like it, it, like yeah. So there's there's a whole thing about that that's really interesting that I won't go into because it's a little bit off topic. But um, I'm intrigued because I mean, like, so like my only in-universe explanation I'd ever had was that Arkham is like the name of a family in Gotham uh, that like started the the asylum. But um, I'm intrigued by this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's possible that it's it's coincidental, although I would be surprised if it was like that right. just so happens the place where all the insanity is kept and stored is named after the place that famously is filled with the madness of like the eldritch horrors that are present in HP Love. Yeah. <laughs> this is created by writers, uh, writers who at a time like that, that it would have been like the initial writers of Batman coming around and, you know, like they would have been into HP Lovecraft at the time. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, that's fascinating. And I mean, and that's kind of what I'm, you know, and what I'm, yeah, what I'm trying to get at too is like, we only see two solutions, quote mark solutions to the crime in Gotham. We see either, uh, this Batman, uh, kills them or uh, allows for the situations where their deaths arise in both this movie and Batman Returns, all the villains die you can say batman killed him you could also say that they just happened to die while in alone in a room with batman uh both of those things are accurate <laughs> and um then in future uh batmans you always you see then the aggressively pacifist batman where he always carefully puts all of them into arkham where they're reserved for story writing later on and in that situation they are still not in a great situation like they're put into arkham they're just they're in like a 1970s insane asylum like it's you're you you're given hopefully a padded room but probably just a steel room with a bunk in it um and as as we've clearly seen in a lot of the nolan movies like the nolan movies really showed that like a bunch of horrible stuff was happening in arkham like these people are being full like further subjugated to the horrors of society that have created them into the villains that they are to until they just become even worse more horrifying villains and so you 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 get incarceration or murder in the streets and neither of those both of those things just keep creating worse and worse villains and so a criticism i would definitely hold of batman as a generality is we never get you know rehabilitation of anybody yeah, for sure. Uh, and that stems a lot from, I mean, views of crime that have been, you know, 
presence in uh, you know society for a long time about it being sort of like a, an individual sort of moral failing. It's like, oh, you can put these people in an asylum, but the only thing to do is lock them up. You can, you know, uh, that's kind of the um, the only thing that they can imagine doing with these people, you know. Um, very much and it's and that is you know always i shouldn't say always in, in recent years i guess i would say has always been like my struggle with batman because as a kid when i was a kid i loved batman batman was my favorite superhero as a kid as an adult going into my 30s i've struggled more and more with enjoying batman because batman more and more feels like a swat team guy with a hero complex busting through people's doors and breaking their legs because they were selling weed um and he sort of is um i mean there's more that you can you know like there, there's more to take from it like i definitely wish cops would act more like batman uh in the form of batman not killing people and not using guns but i'm a i you know it's pretty evident that that's not the takeaway that anybody takes from batman they take this this takeaway that uh crime this that crime is something addressed with militant force and uh is a personal failing of that individual and that you either kill them or throw them in a cell and throw away the key and just assume everything's going to be better and oof i think it i think it's really interesting in like thinking of these two, you know, sort of characters as, you know, men and what, what do they say about, you know, masculinity per se? Because obviously like Batman has a ton to say or accidentally say or implicitly say by the time that it was written in about like, you know, the socioeconomics of crime and all that stuff. But like specifically, like, what is it, you know, what is there this saying about men? um that is interesting and that is like um like batman for example is um a really interesting um character when it comes to masculinity because he is um you, you know in, in 89 batman he has this reputation of being a playboy which is a very like classic masculine stereotype but that's not played out in the movie all that much. In fact, not at all, really. The one time in the movie that he like notices a girl and kind of like, you know, takes a drink and starts to go for her is like the girl that he's interested in the entire movie. And he's not at all a playboy. He's like, he's not at all like his image suggests. Um, which is really interesting because like I feel like that's true for um you know like there's a lot of that sense of which like um we as men tend to hide behind images of men um as a sort of protective mechanism in batman's case it's very literally a protection for his own identity like he hides behind all kinds of images because it gets people to not look at him right like if you can take a person and cleanly put them in a box like here's batman or here oh, sorry here's bruce wayne he's a typical millionaire playboy rich guy like no depth like that's fine they don't think about him and so like 
like why would he be batman that guy's like uh like shallow and frivolous why would he spend his nights you know getting down in the dirt with all the peasants you know beating them up um <laughs> but like I, I think that's interesting because like you know the the commentary of um uh like i mentioned earlier of the of vicky that that the mansion that he lives in doesn't seem very much like him is really uh, like really resonated with me in that it was a moment where like i i've i felt this in my life of of times where you put out certain you have you in in order to avoid various toxic things about like things that people expect you to be or people ways that people expect you to be as a as a man you put out certain kinds of images we've talked about this before in the show a variety of times under a variety of circumstances and then someone gets close to you and you take the time to like open yourself up become vulnerable let them see you for who you really are and and in bruce wayne's case that's a very layered process <laughs> but like um it's in that vulnerability that people go like oh wow you're not at all like the stereotype that i had imagined for you like you aren't like a rich guy at all you don't seemed like you care for the um care for any of that stuff like you have like a few places in here that are the places you take care of and care about and are nice to be in but and, and but like i mean even his relationship with his butler right alfred who is a treasure by the way easily the easily in my opinion the most positive masculine <laughs> representative in the whole series uh but in, in including this movie, but uh, even his relationship with his butler is one of sort of more friendship and camaraderie than you would expect from a billionaire who generally would see them as the help and not really, you know, um, give them much respect or consideration. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this is one of the big clashes for me between Batman and Iron Man. Like, I enjoyed the idea of both Batman and Iron Man as a kid because they were self-made superheroes. They didn't have a special power. They were just humans who built their power. And that was just fascinating to me. I was obsessed with the idea of like engineering and building things and all of that. Um, but the big difference and the reason why I preferred Batman over Iron Man was, first of all, because Batman, the animated series, was on Fox 27, uh, one of three channels I got, and Iron Man wasn't. <laughs> also, I mean, yeah. <laughs> was the ethical difference between Batman and Iron Man. Like, Iron Man, which, and I, to be fair, I don't know how much Iron Man uh, exhibits this in the animated series. I'm mostly thinking of the movies, because, again, I really didn't have access to the animated series of Iron Man, just the movies. But in the movies of Iron Man, he's a dick. He's a womanizer. He's... Uh, bringing different women home all the time. And there's this, you know, like you see this, you know, even though Bruce Wayne has a, a reputation as a playboy, it's very obvious whenever he brings Vicki Vale home that Alfred is like, oh, thank 
God, he's got a girlfriend. Like, oh, there's a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like anybody who has ever been like, I, I don't know. I, I feel this, um, from, you know, never having dated much as a kid. Whenever I did bring a girl around, there was like an energy from the family that was like, ah, oh, thank God he's brought a girl around. Like was that same energy I was getting from Alfred in this movie, which is not the energy you get about a playboy. And, uh, right. Yeah. You know, then the fact that he, yeah, he had this friendly relationship with Alfred. Meanwhile, like Tony Stark is a dick to anybody who serves him. Uh, anybody, you know, he kind of treats people as objects. And that scene is like his failing as a person. And, you know, it, that's so that's where his character arc is. But I always related more to the Batman's character arc of he's fundamentally a good person to anybody around him. Like Bruce Wayne cares about Alfred, sees Alfred as a father figure, really like isn't super hot about the fact that Alfred, you know, sticks around as a butler at times. He kind of wishes he didn't take on that role. Um, they, you know, like in this movie, you see this scene where, yeah, they're having the awkward romantic dinner and they're like, oh, fuck this. Let's just go hang out with Alfred, um, which is like such an odd decision. You're on a date with somebody. Don't you want like, you know, alone time with them? But I think the fact that he does that shows that like that very familial relationship that he has with Alfred. And then there's several other times, too, where specifically Alfred isn't serving Bruce Wayne. Alfred is helping Bruce Wayne and Batman. Like, there's a, a couple of scenes later in that movie where Alfred is, like, doing research and stuff on the computers and, like, relaying information to Batman. He's being the man in the chair in a way that is it shows very clearly that Batman has a partnership and a relationship with him. And that's overall, like, one of the things I always enjoyed about Batman. Also, Batman's uh, relationship with Vicki Vale, his relationship later on, uh, at times fraught, uh, his fraught relationship with Catwoman. As you see this, like, relationship between them, especially in like, yeah, the Batman animated series is all about him learning how to build partnerships and relationships with people, with Catwoman, with Wonder Woman, with all of these characters, often women, he, you know, sure there's some romantic tension because writers are writers, but he also always has an equal footing relationship with these characters. And that was just something I loved as a kid. And I continue to love as an adult. I think it's such a sign of like some positive masculinity to show this dude who has a fuck ton of privilege who finds ways to fundamentally work with other people who are often way the fuck less privileged than him in a way that puts them at an equal footing in the relationship. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and I... I think it's interesting that, like, so much of... Uh, so much of this, it's hard to tell to tell whether or not it's intentional. Like, there's this like sense of which, like, clearly, like with Batman, you kind of have as part of the package a sense that, uh, oh, there's more to this guy than there seems because, like, yeah, he's fucking Batman, but like, like, it's it's interesting that that sort of dynamic is one that is feels so very like masculine in a way like it, it it really to me says a lot about like how much we as guys have to put on 
a face. We have like, like that it is so ubiquitous. So many men do this that you can put this as a character arc and every guy will be like, I get that guy. I totally get it. Yeah, you, I got a side too that's like my own, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it, that's as complicated as it ever gets, you know. Like especially, and I think this is kind of an important element of Batman arising in the 1950s the way he did. This is especially something endemic to capitalism. Uh, you get, I, I don't know, and I, maybe I'm just reading too much into something here, but with Bruce Wayne, you have this guy who has a inheritance and a bit of a soul suck job because in, in every version of batman i've seen like there's you know wayne enterprises is a big part of it and it's he does not give a flying fuck about wayne enterprises um and he recognizes that the wealth of the the wealthy people in uh gotham are destroying gotham and he, he wants to get to the bottom of this corruption but he's like born into that system and so he has to secretly fight it at night so that he feels better because if he doesn't, he's he can't live with the guilt. That's like the core element of Batman. It's not that he just chooses to be Batman. It's that he can't be anything other than Batman because the guilt would destroy him. And to me, that like says something about uh, capitalism that A, a writer or a team of writers can come up with that idea of a character because they relate to that idea so heavily, and that men and other people in audiences can rush out to see this character because they relate to it so heavily, I think relates to a thing in capitalism where we all have bullshit, soul-suck jobs, where we feel like we're feeding into the systems that crush people, and we really wish that at night we could put on a mask where we go fight that system and not face any consequences from it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's it's very interesting because I think this is this is like an example of like how how much like subconscious stuff can like happens like that. Um, you get these sort of like really interesting, like very nuanced, subtle points that like, I think a lot of people like hear it as like, oh, you're reading too much into it or whatever. Like you're, you're inserting things that weren't there. It's like, well, they may not have been put there intentionally, right? But um, they're there and they didn't come from nowhere, yeah. right? that it's too complicated of a point to have arisen by accident. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those things that just analyzing literature comes with. I mean, we, we talk about this in all types of analyzing literature. When we analyze, you know, literature from, like, Russian literature, because I'm thinking of this because it's so uh, dramatically and historically gloomy and uh, depressing and also, like, wildly violent and uh, nihilistic. And it's not an intentional, like Russian writers in the 18th century didn't sit down thinking, okay, how can I put as much nihilism into this piece as humanly physically possible? That wasn't what they went out with the goal with. They went in saying, 
oh, I'm going to write a story about two people in love. And in the end, they realize that life is pointless. And so they spend the rest of it in a prison cell. And ha, ah, what a happy ending. Like, it was this, all these, these fundamental things of the, the, this writer's life just coming together in their perspective of life being represented through their work. And so, yeah, that's what I'm arguing. Like, yeah, it's definitely, like, not that these writers for Batman the Animated Series or Batman 1989, like, got together in a room and were like, how do we show how much we hate our jobs and how much we would like to go beat up <laughs> people at night? Like, it's, but it's just these kind of, a, like, you know, somebody writes this down on a whiteboard or chalkboard in that time behind them, and they're like, oh, wow, that sounds awesome. I don't know why. It just feeds into something in my soul. It's the exact same thing. It's the same thing as when you write, you know, uh, uh, something in the in the, during the Cold War in the in America, and you write, okay, so I have this idea for a piece of literature that is about somebody being terrified uh, of of Armageddon while they're buried under the ground, and everybody's like, "Whoo, boy, I relate to that." I don't know why. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. There's there is uh, a lot of that I think that goes on in this and this uh, particular character that's like that because you know I think and and maybe we'll see this you know if we you know go through the whole history of Batman or whatever but like like a big part of it seems to be that like there there is this like reflection of you know, society's perspective on certain things like revealed in Batman, like Nolan's Batman, for example, like is sort of like very particularly removes a segment of bat typical Batman character. And that's one of like the inventor. He doesn't invent shit in that movie. He has like a guy that invents stuff for him and he pays him. Like, so they really like took out the inventor part and ramped up the billionaire aspect of him. That's a really interesting thing to do to Batman at the time that Christopher Nolan's Batman was written, right? So like, and I won't uh, won't go too 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 much further into that, just because like you know we may talk about that particularly more, but um, hmm, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, Tesla, <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, yeah. but. Yeah, so I think that like there's a lot of like um, uh, while I'll say that you certainly can you know build too many like uh, assumptions into your thinking about a thing like where like if you're making conclusions based on an assumption based on a conclusion that you made from two more assumptions that like you can get chained where you're like okay now you're more or less inventing points to make like but I certainly don't think that like this um rises to that point really like i think like this these are like pretty good perspectives on a lot of that yeah i agree and i think one of the deepest ones one of the deepest ones these we haven't touched on is something you actually messaged me about and that was um uh shit director just went out of my head the name of the director tim burton tim burton's deep and intrinsic hatred of televisions <laughs> yes yeah so i i noticed this like uh for some reason like there is this weird pattern that like the joker 
keeps blowing up TVs and he uses TV a lot too. So it's can't even be like a, like there, there's like, there seems like, and I didn't get like a fully fledged like theory about this, but like, there seems to be something about like television being said here that like the Joker keeps destroying it. And then it also keeps using it to accomplish his goals of, of like, you know, creating spectacles and stuff like that. It's like, he hates it, but like, uh, yeah, has a love-hate relationship with the media in general. I agree, and I and, well, and I think specifically, I think that goes. Like, I, I think if we can kind of dig into some of that with um, the Joker's primary goal with the uh, you know selling the makeup products that causes everybody's, uh, I think, just to die, and also they break out into skin things. They're a little unclear about the specifics of what this. Yeah, does, people die bad. because of a combination of various toxins that create you know. So like some people get sick because they don't get all three products or whatever, and it's like yeah. Yeah, and so like we first see this when he does the, when he hijacks the te- television broadcast, and I I I kind of felt like is, as a kid, and I and I and I again like I I remember being young and thinking this, and now as I'm an adult, I'm just connecting some dots to some other things, but this might be assumptions on assumptions. I've always felt like Ted Burton, uh, Ted Hedbert, Tim Burton. Ted Burton. <laughs> I terrible at old Ted Burton. Why? I've always felt like Tim Burton in a lot of his pieces tries to eschew the concept of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for in this? Like not traditional beauty, but like contemporary beauty of like, you know, the idea of a film being beautiful and it needs to be bright colors and it needs to be clean and it needs to be clear and it needs to be these figures of a certain uh, like, you know, shape and, uh, um, you know, uh, proportion and all of that. Tim Burton always tries to skew that, and I kind of feel like that's intentional and is a bit of a statement about certain concepts of beauty. I might be way off mark. I've never had a conversation with Tim Burton, but as a kid, that was kind of where I took that from. Is like, oh, he's trying to say something about like all of the newscasters and stuff, say, you know, like wearing makeup and then having this like kind of a fake facade about. Uh, what was happening in Gotham and it's like, oh, everything is wonderful. Everything is great. And then like, as they're almost trying to tell you that everything is wonderful, everything is great. Don't worry. Don't worry about this problem out there. You see the problem happening to them. Um, And I felt like that was, I don't know, kind of a message, but I I think there's a very clear overarching message with the Joker here, which is like, if you pay attention and again, it's already, it's almost hard to tell because you know, like this is a common, like, unless like like with these kind of commentaries sometimes it's like you have to be so explicit about it to make it obvious that you're trying to comment on it because it's like hegemonic in like a way that it's everywhere like very to me there was a very clear message here of like all the joker's big spectacular moves are commentaries on like consumerism and capitalism it's like what does he do he like like to to pick a few things out of the out of the um you know out of the schemes that go on in the movie like there's the makeup thing the product thing that's like very much a like oh you're buying all these products that you need for your beauty for your hygiene for your whatever and there's a whole bunch of companies that are in that whole supply chain that you don't know about that do whatever and they may cut corners they may do stuff they may include fucking poison in it and you don't know until a point that it starts killing you that's a good point to be honest like like yeah i literally earlier today was reading a book about how retinol is 
maybe not something we should be using. Yeah, he takes over, like in the movie, he takes over a chemical company and he inserts literal poison into various products and no companies that are down the supply chain from those chemicals catch it. They don't investigate. They're like, yeah, okay, this is the thing. We're putting it in there. Like, they don't care. They're still making their money. Like, it's not until it starts killing people and becomes a a whole problem. And even then, like, there's this, like, um, there's this, like, uh, element of it where it's, like, because it's, like, a combination of things across several different products, like, like, no one knows what's going on. And there's never this, like, feeling of, like, oh, like, uh maybe like only batman ends up figuring it out how how it goes and he does that with help and like there's this sense of like oh no one who has like an actual background in like chemistry and uh, can figure out what's going on here they can't look at their things and figure out like hmm maybe they just don't care enough you know what i mean like there's a there's a subtle implication there so like that's one right another one is the point where he sets up the fake date with vicky and like kills the whole room and comes in there and trashes all the paintings, puts like Joker faces on them and does all this stuff, right? Like there's a very, they take a lot of time in the movie showing them ruining a lots of famous art, right? Like there's this sense of like, uh, like we're gonna destroy a bunch of stuff that's worth a bunch of money because it, um, you know, show it is like this beautiful display of like wealth and stuff. And like, who cares about that? That's rich bullshit, right? And there's one painting. Do you? I don't know if you remember this moment because it's very specific. There's one painting he leaves, and what is it? It's the painting that looks like a horror type of thing. And he goes, "I like this one. Let's keep it as is." Like, like he picks the ugliest painting, right? And I looked up this painting. It's a semi-famous one. It's almost it's almost famous. Part because partially because it's the painting that he leaves in this movie, but like it's but the painting was painted of like a pope who was like painted in this horrifying like there was this like tradition of like painting popes among all this like beautiful regalia in the background. It was this version of that. It was like he was painted in a horrifying way. He was painted with like a dissected cow carcass in the background, and it's like this horrifying like thing that was like a whole like subversion of like the um the sort of regalia and pomp and circumstance around like the Pope and that kind of stuff. Like this big Pope is a big symbol of wealth and power. Right. This sounds very Tim Burton. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah, for sure. So like, that's, that's the second one. And then like the third one that I'll point out is like the parade, right? How does he get a bunch of people in a big illegal parade (laughs) to follow him so he can kill them all. He just starts, throwing money out there he can basically just know everyone here the vast majority of people are so desperate and so trying so in need of help that you can just throw cash into the air in a big illegal parade and a mob of people will follow you on the hopes that they'll walk away with a couple grand or something like that and it works and he gets tons of people even to the point that like when it's already started to go wrong when he's already started releasing poison gas you will note even though it's in the background the crowd doesn't stop they keep staying around that poison gas and desperately trying to grab money out of the float and stuff and he shoots a guy no one in the crowd reacts they keep desperately grabbing money and then it's only once they start 
spraying machine guns around in a way that they can't ignore anymore. The crowd finally panics and disperses. Right? Like there, like that to me is by far the most intentional one. It's like there is a sense in which like they are clearly very much saying, like, look how easy it is for him to put all these people into a thing because they are so desperate. They are so much in need that you can just be like, I'm gonna go down Main Street and toss like you know, $50 million into the air and whoever catches it gets to keep it. Like, and you like instantly, boom, have a crowd. Like that, that is uh, like every single one of Joker's schemes is like a, uh, is whether you consider it a commentary or not, it is at the very least relies on the existence of capitalism and consumerism as it is, you know, in the eighties and continues to be in many of the same ways today that allows his schemes to work in the first place, allows his schemes to be the deadly and subversive things that they are. I think that's valid. I, I think you're right in that. And I, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's important to perhaps pair that with the subversion that the movie itself is in that um, a contextualization that we often kind of forget today is that uh, the Superman movies of just a few years earlier were huge um and they were also bright colorful daytime movies full of a lot of like yay america we're in the suburbs and everything is great kind of energy to it um very pro that kind of capitalism consumerism feel very you know it's superman it's you know like the the po the polished end of things and tim burton and, and you know and batman had the Dark Knight comic, or I actually, I don't know if the Dark Knight comics had already comics had already came out before or after 1989 Batman, but Tim Burton's dark take on Batman was new and very subversive, both to movies in general. Like the 1980s, uh, you know, like generally didn't have that quite that type of a energy and take in a movie. And for a superhero movie, of course, which there wasn't a lot, but there was, you know, the, the the Superman movies, which had been super huge, this was super subversive and wildly different. And then, yeah, to take those direct ideas and constructs and play with them in that way, I think was very intentional, probably. And it's interesting at the very least. And I definitely like the, the, the art scene one was one that I actually, I remember as a kid too, thinking as they're like spray painting these paintings, I remember as a kid watching that. And like, I think specifically because I was around a bunch of uh, commentary about like graffiti and how horrible it was that people were doing graffiti and stuff when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so watching that scene and they're like spray painting these paintings. And I remember thinking like, but those are just things that like rich people painted. And now it's just somebody who isn't like a fancy rich person is painting it. And now it's ruined. It's like, you're doing the same thing as the first guy did, but now it's not like, you know, and I mean, which is, there's some child logic to that. Like there's nuance yeah, to yeah, that, yeah. but I still think like that, you know, there's a thing there yeah yeah it does it does actually put a, a certain flavor on you know this sense of like uh what is and isn't considered like art and you know commentary and so i think like modern art does this a lot of like like a lot of like modern art gets a lot of like uh 
gets shit on a lot by like conservatives in particular by being like you know not really art um uh in in that sort of traditional sense like it's not a highly technical execution but a lot of that is calling into like question whether or not that's what makes something art is it the is it the execution that makes it art because like there are tons of highly technical very executed things that are beautiful and have think and have like value that aren't considered art and you know a lot of modern art is pointing that out whether it's like like first of all you could look at the tons and tons of paintings that were likely extremely beautiful that were done at the time that no one remembers because they haven't been raised to some sort of elevated status among a certain class of like considered good artists like you know this is where the whole like you can't be a famous you know incredibly rich artist you, you can't be a famous like a well-respected artist until you're dead sort of thing uh like comes from a little bit um but there is like a lot of the modern art stuff ends up like commenting on that not by like because like, you can't go back in time and, and get paintings that were done at the same time as picasso by someone that no one remembers and say like look this is pretty too and highly technical no one considered this art worth preserving right you can't do that so like they often resort to it by pointing out like uh, i think one of the most famous ones is like the guy who puts a urinal in an art museum and like it's almost the decision to put a urinal in the art museum that's what is the artistic thing it's not the actual urinal it's not the actual it's like the putting it in this place with this placard with this thing and like the whole point of that in the first place was look at this thing like really look at it it's kind of wild in in like it's got like this very particular shape it's got like this very like intricate design like if if it weren't for the fact that you knew it to be a place that people peed in right you might look at that and be like oh what an interesting sculpture i wonder like what this like there are plenty of modern art sculptures that are like there are there are plenty of i mean not even like modern i, I, I don't i'm not an art historian enough to like commentate on exactly where or when this kind of thing might fit in so like you know you're gonna have to take take my layman's uh take here but like you know there are lots of art sculptures i've seen that like definitely are art that like if the urinal didn't exist as an item like you would and that was put in a thing you'd be like wow what a weird interesting shape i wonder what they're trying to like i wonder what this is supposed to mean or whatever like it's a really weird sculpture oh it's got this like ceramic piece and like a metallic piece like maybe it's like some sort of like you know thing about like you know you, you could i could you know fan fiction art commentary about a world where there aren't any urinals all day i guess but like <laughs> point point being like uh pe people do this with like like the the point of the device of the piece in the first place was to say there's beauty and technicality and like like the making of that thing is a highly technical and difficult thing to do like if you were to try to make one of those by hand and not by machine it would be hard and the person who designed it first had to very carefully design a lot of things about it there's a lot of technical intelligence and skill built into this thing and that no one considers it art and the only reason that no one considers it art is because it's where it is in society it's its place it's 
hangs on a bathroom wall and you pee in it. <laughs> like, like that's the point. And so like, yeah, I think this Joker scene does like put a little bit of a thing in that. Like, you know, you can very easily imagine a world where like, oh, I have the one copy of this painting that was ruined by this guy. And it's actually a collector's thing now. And like, you could repurpose it and suddenly it's art again. You know, it's like, instead of a vandalized piece of art, it's now like uh, its own type of art. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's not an accident, too, that Tim Burton uses um, prints in this scene, uh, which prints at that time. Now we just think of prints, and again, like you can't be a well-respected artist until you're dead. Now we just look back on prints as this incredible, amazing artist that we all met, or they all, like, that we all loved. But I all I remember the early '90s, and I remember there being a lot of criticism of Prince as kind of this artsy, um, you know, pop artist who oh, he's the artist formerly known as Prince. Uh, he's so full of himself. He's this and that, and uh, I think that's a part of that scene. Also, you know, just the Joker being in a bright purple, you know, purple and green suit is yeah, it's all a statement and. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I I I need to look more into like the really early Batman to see like how much of that is like just like a straight callback to the original Joker, and like you know, there's a Batman's a very deep well of history going all the way back to like Detective Comics and stuff. But like honestly, my father-in-law would be significantly more qualified to talk about than I would. But like, um, yeah, it, it, there's. It, the Joker is is a really weird one to unpack because like he is also like stands as like a very masculine figure that has a lot of stuff built into it. And obviously like not much about the Joker is positive masculinity, whereas like I think you could say like Batman's kind of like, you know, at least goals and stuff like of making things better. And like he is a lot softer of a guy in 89, uh, you know, he he gets hard on the bad guys or whatever but like he's a lot like he's very gentle in general very kind um uh and very giving in general like he's generally a pretty positive character obviously but like the joker is like the epitome of like a bunch of toxic shit like balled up into a guy and like made into his entire personality uh because like the joker in a very real sense like uh, you know, is born out of a, a similar desire for vengeance as Batman, at least in the 89 movie, you know, he's out to get vengeance on the guy that got, that put him in that position, the, the first place, the crime Lord that he worked for. And, he, uh, and then, you know, un, unable to be satisfied by that because, you know it's like one of those things like you never have quite enough power you always need more you know keeps going and making it you know increasingly more spectacle uh homicides uh to sort of cope with the fact that he's kind of like lost everything um but you know that's that i think is like a bit of a commentary on like why does that also feel genuinely masculine in a way it's like you know why is it that we accept sort of uncritically like i think um i think if the joker was a woman it would feel um wrong uh in a, in a certain way it would be like 
uh, she's really going over the top here. I mean, come on. Like, like, but when the Joker, as he's been depicted so far, like does it, it's kind of like, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. This guy was pushed to his absolute limit. You know, he had a really bad day, <laughs> you know, and he's been under this kind of pressure the whole time and he gets it and he gets it. And yeah, he finally snapped and he just starts killing lots of people. Like that's how it is. Like when men snap, they just kill lots of people. You know, like there's that sense of like, uh, we, um, expect you know huge violence out of men who are pushed to their breaking point whereas like when women get to their breaking point we expect them to cry maybe at the very extremes they kill themselves but they don't go on homicidal rampages and that's my whole criticism of the joker movie i i have such mixed feelings about the joker movie i think it is a in a vacuum is a interesting movie to watch because it does explore a lot of things about that, how that develops, uh, how that kind of psychological concept develops, how you see a system tear a person down until they just brutally fall apart. However, not in a vacuum, I have deep, deep, deep criticisms of the Joker movie because there were never consequences for the Joker. The Joker snaps, goes on a homicidal rampage, and it's just a-okay. The movie ends with him having a final dandy riot. Everything's doing great. There are no consequences for the Joker. This is cool. Kids, you should go out and do one of these. And that's... I just really never, I like, I could, I could never, I never was able to settle with that with the Joker. Which brings me to some thoughts I'm not going to say about the new Batman movie that I want to talk with you about after you've seen the new Batman movie. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but we are planning on discussing it um, in, a, in a future episode. Um, and... Uh, that'll be interesting. Um, we'll see. I know Tommy and I are both like significant fans of Batman in general and would probably be happy to go like a full month talking about various aspects of Batman and Rogues Gallery because like there's a lot to discuss, uh, obviously. But, you know, um, we're at least going to talk about the the new one uh, here soon. And uh, um but yeah, I, I agree with uh, with exactly that. I think that there is um, a lot, you know, I think like a lot of times with comic book um, heroes because there's, or comic book characters because they're so like um, mythical, I'll say. Like they, they, you know, are kind of like the hero myths of our time in like, you know, in the same way that like maybe like Hercules or whatever it was you know, like, there is this sense in which, like, um, people sometimes uncritically accept, like, the Joker or, you know, any character like this for what it, he is. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course he went on a homicidal rampage. He's the Joker. But, like, that's not the point. Like, yeah, we all know by the end of the movie he's going to turn into the crazy Joker that goes on homicidal rampages. The question is, like, you know, what is the what is the commentary about how someone gets to that point right and 
I think that's that's where you know the Joker both succeeds and fails in that sort of respect in that like they make it um they they do point out the ways in which like the stress of the world can really put someone in a position like when like you know as someone who you know founded and works with an organization that deals with a lot of you know poor people and poor issues like we definitely see what it looks like when you know the locus of like three or four different systems of uh, oppression and poverty and all that stuff like focus in on a single person where it's like you are trapped like everywhere you go there's something that beats you back down and it's like so difficult to just like solve any problem unless someone just like hands you twenty thousand dollars or something like and even that is like only to get you started <laughs> you know there there is uh so like i i am sympathetic to the message of the joker in that like yeah being the focus of a lot of different angles of oppression and really like having a really really being in a really really hard position and having a lot a lot of pressure put on you does like people don't come out of that untraumatized and there i i i completely take that what i think that the the ugly part of the commentary is like is that really the kind of thing that drives people like to me if you're going to get to a homicidal rampage part you probably had a pre-existing condition that had nothing to do with your systemic oppression because like a there like if if that were true even in universe of the joker right there would be hundreds of him thousands even and there aren't it's just him so like you gotta take that with a little bit of a like you should what you should not walk away with is like and, and what unfortunately i feel like comes across is like it's an acceptable reaction like you're you're getting oppressed by a bunch of stuff yeah like of course you go on a homicidal rampage that's normal it's like no it's not it's like the point should not be like this is an understandable reaction it should be like like we, like to me the point should be we should be really careful about putting so much pressure on people all the time because you do that to someone who has an ugly propensity toward mental illness in a particular way and you get a pretty nasty outcome and that does happen that happens not just in the joker as a mythical figure but it happens in the real world like mass shootings and stuff like they are all people who are under a particular focused amount of pressure combined with um, being in a place where they're receiving a lot of toxic ideas combined with having a little bit of a pre-existing propensity for a mental illness of some kind. Like that's the kind of stuff that like gets you that kind of that outlet, you know, back outlash is not the word i'm looking for it's like that kind of outburst uh and you know i think to me there is a little bit of romanticization that goes into that sometimes that's like not healthy for people to hear because like i don't why well i don't why well, wouldn't go so far as some of the takes that were around the joker at the time that were like you know this is going to encourage a whole wave of like incel shoot 'em ups like um 
I do think that there is a sense of which like um, romanticizing like extreme violence as a way to relieve pressure that comes from the passive violence of a system that's around you is not um, is not like a good solution is not something that should be like you know even like a thing where like yeah that's understandable it's like the entire point of batman in some sense is that like responding to violence passive or otherwise with stronger violence more expensive violence gets you an even more violent response and there's an escalatory aspect to it like so like uh it's weird when it comes to like movies like that but sometimes they're like yeah look how you know look how relieved he looks now getting to do all this violence and it's like that no the whole point is that it shouldn't give him any relief <laughs> like it, yes. it like that's why he keeps doing it because it never works he never feels better because like this isn't the solution yes um and i mean we see that kind of explored later on in batman stuff too where he kind of starts i think it was maybe in the batman animated series where he starts kind of discussing like like looking at his rogues gallery and being like wait if i wasn't here all of these people probably would have just been normal criminals doing normal shit and instead they started freezing people and blowing up buildings <laughs> right yeah <laughs> And in some way, like, yeah, well, like, I don't want to get into a whole different analysis of this, but like, in some ways, I'll, I'll just say that, like, um, it's Batman's constraint by trying to be part of the system that he clearly rejects that causes so much of this to happen. Like, it's like, a lot of the villains that he stops he are driven by revenge or some immense amount of pressure they want to get their revenge on and then he stops them at that moment and puts them away and now they have like this un <laughs> this this like uh failure to avenge the thing that caused them to become villains in the first place and now it's all focused on him and he's so like extreme with his gadgets and all that stuff and all the tools that he has that you know they have to like ramp that up and like they have to create whole yeah there's there's to me a certain like yeah clarity of like um certainly like a lot of these people would exist in that like um they'd um you know like a lot of the stories didn't really have anything to do with batman like batman wasn't like a direct cause but like the reason that they the reason that they were you know they become arch villains rather than one-off criminals that kill someone and then probably get arrested and put in jail is because they have to rise to meet batman's extreme extremeness but anyway i agree um yeah well i think that was a good uh i think that kind of makes a good wrap on our take of 1989 batman next week we'll do more batman yeah assuming i can get in to see the movie i have like a vacation trip with my wife but i'm hoping to be able to fit it in uh somewhere in there because i really i i, I want to see it real bad anyway so like i'll try to 
squeeze it in where I can, and hopefully we can talk about it next week. And for you folks out there, as always, if you would like to support the podcast and support what we do, both on the podcast and uh, in the non-podcast realm, as our Bruce Wayne and our Batman selves, if you will, um, go to patreon.com backslash uh, wow, I that's not how HTML, that, that's not how that works. If you would go to Patreon uh, slash Red Dirt Collective, am I right there? Yeah, Patreon.com slash Red Dirt Collective, yeah. Okay, oh yeah, I was doing it right the first time. Brain is broken. Um, so yeah, donate to the Red Dirt Collective Patreon. Um, it, that money will go to mutual aid efforts. Uh, that money will go to uh, filling pa- uh, food pantries, uh, community fridges, um, uh, cook for a crowd events, uh, all kinds of cool community-based mutual aid efforts that uh, happen here in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, if you don't want to do that and you don't live here and you're like, well, I don't know those people. I'm not in Oklahoma. uh, Look around where you are at and find some organizations to do that kind of stuff there. Uh, Just search mutual aid and whatever the name of your city is. And I bet somebody's doing it and you should go support them because those people are probably cool people. Yep. I uh, obviously am a fan of Ritter Collective. (laughs) Yes. I help found them but uh yeah we we every every dollar we get through that um goes very directly toward um organizing and uh mutual aid type of efforts um just helping out the people in our society that need the most help um so yeah yep uh thank you philip thank you all at home Have a wonderful afternoon, evening, or most importantly, the night. Bye.